Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. Dmitry, how are you? Good evening, Conrad. I'm doing pretty well myself. And just to start, I just want to get, give a big uh, thank you and shout out to Patrick, as well as his team at Restoring Order at YouTube. We were featured in one of his videos recently on the Restoring Order YouTube channel. You can check it out. The link will be in the description, as well as on our Substack. Um, in the episode, we discussed for about two, almost two and a half hours, some of the issues surrounding Russia, in particular the geopolitics around the Ukraine conflict, and we even got into some discussion around the Orthodox Church, exactly how Orthodoxy is related to some of these uh, recent events. So that's a great video to check out. That was a few days ago, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have a pretty fruitful discussion today with Conrad here. Yeah, that was a fantastic conversation with Patrick. I want to thank you again for having us on. You know, we've we've kept up with him for a while, so uh, be sure to subscribe to his channel and everything. But yeah, no, it's been a big week of news. There's a whole slew of things going on, a lot of stuff we mentioned in that episode. You know, we might repeat a little bit here, but there's a whole lot more stuff even in these few days that's happened. So uh, we're probably going to get into a little bit of that. But uh, yeah, just starting out probably to cover some of the stuff we covered in the podcast, we want to talk about... Uh, the Poland uh, controversy where the uh, striking of that, of those missiles that landed in Poland and unfortunately killed some civilians. And, uh, you know, that got Twitter and uh, the internet and the world and the West into a, into a big tizzy about World War III and Poland talking about investigating in Article 5 and Zelensky, of course, insisting that it was Russian missiles, you know. Uh, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts, of course, on that, Dimitri? We, we all saw that unfold in real time. Well, I think the most surprising thing about that uh, entire story is to this day, and it's almost, it's almost been over a week since that event, um, Zelensky, the Ukrainian government, still hasn't admitted fault for... Um, and look, it's not necessarily Zelensky's personal fault that the anti-air missile shot in the literal opposite direction and hit a Polish farm, killing two civilians. But uh, the Ukrainian government hasn't taken on liability or even asked even apologized really formally for it which is surprising because it's been uh even admitted by poland itself the united states joe biden and multiple other parties that yeah this missile was fired from and a ukrainian anti-air missile launcher and yes it did actually strike polish territory it was an accident we understand and i'm sure zelensky does too but why zelensky's crew and he himself keep pushing this um we're not guilty narrative is uh yeah it's looking pretty bad for the optics well, I think what it might unfortunately indicate is that, well, unfortunately depends on who you ask, unfortunate for Zelensky, of course, is that Zelensky um, may realize that he might be facing the end of the endless supply of weapons and aid from the West, as even some of the most ardent supporters seem to be perhaps willing to put the brakes on. You're hearing talk of, you know, Ukraine fatigue, and people are not happy that he's, you know, going all out. You know, he's saying all these things coupled with calls for retaking Crimea, and that's what's necessary to even come to the negotiating table in this, you know, very, very anti-negotiations rhetoric. And the thing is, even Poland, who said they were going to call NATO Article 4, which, you know, would mean call for a meeting, to then perhaps think about discerning Article 5, which would be, you know, hostilities and boots on the ground, Poland scrapped that too once it, literally everybody saw the pictures of that it was a Ukrainian anti-air. So, that, that it all got scrapped pretty quickly, but I think Zelensky is he's so desperate that he's just hoping that the propaganda machine would work enough to where it might just get through to some people and they'd see that this is a good reason to finally, you know, go all in on Russia. But uh, it seemed that even even the Poles, who are never ones to miss a chance to to call for to call for more involvement in the conflict, they were they walked it back, you know. So I think I think Zelensky might be a bit afraid. 
Yeah, I think Zelensky has definitely bitten off too much. Uh, and look, I'm not sure if it's he himself or maybe some of his handlers who are simply pushing a certain agenda and he just has to go along similar to Joe Biden with exactly what his staffers and his uh, general advisors tell him he should pass on. It's, it does seem like he is a bit of a puppet at this point because he's not really speaking his mind. Unlike when we've seen in previous years, even some of his comedy used to be quite edgy. He used to make jokes about Ukraine itself. He used to not, I mean, as Father Joseph I believe even mentioned <laughs> Zelensky, uh, he's not a native Ukrainian speaker. His first language is Russian. So his Ukrainian isn't even that good. He had to learn Ukrainian as of when he took on like the race for presidency. And yeah, um, it's a really interesting sort of character. And just the way he reacts to some of these events, it's really un unpolitician-like. And sometimes maybe that's a good thing. This is why people like Donald Trump, for example, because he really is a businessman in the role of a politician. So he, there is some sort of genu genuine sort of uh, attitude he has towards everything. It's not like a, you know, the typical political outlook where you lie about things and you kind of twist your words, you know, do some sort of lawyering and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's really bizarre seeing Zelensky kind of try and, uh, uh, you know, headstrongly lie, lie himself through this particular subject. But again, the story at the moment is now the Poland thing has happened about a week ago, but the recent event of the Russian POWs being... Um, well, seemingly murdered. I I don't even want to use the word execute because execution would uh, entail or imply a certain amount of uh, certain amount of judicial judicial decision. But this was a blatant execution that took place about a week ago. Uh, photos have gone viral from a Russian drone showing uh, Russian POWs uh, just kind of um, uh, lying on the ground dead. There's blood coming from them. About eleven, ten, eleven of them, and of course Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky, of course, didn't comment on this, and yeah, just Conrad. I, I guess we'll just speak about this recent POW killing. Like, how, how, how extreme is this for the Ukrainian side? Well, I saw all sorts of discourse just about the images themselves. I mean, what looked to me like just the aerial shots of everybody just having taken a shot to the head, laying on the ground, and some of them had, of course, their hands had been removed, and some other unfortunate and very sad sight to see. But, of course, many of the people on the Ukrainian side justified it by pointing to, I think, an extended version of one of the videos that showed, I think, the last person to come out of the house or the shack that they were, that the Ukrainian soldiers were surrounding and had taken the occupant's prisoner. They came out supposedly guns blazing. And the video, of course, ends before you see him shoot or anything exactly. But, you know, even assuming that happens, the vast majority, if not all of the other POWs were on the ground, hands behind their back, you know, surrendered. So I don't see how that in any way justifies killing all of those other people. But uh, I apologize for laughing about that. I shouldn't, but it's just very ridiculous online to see people that are ostensibly reasonable Western people that have jobs and faces. Some of these people are not even anonymous in what they say, are just so blatantly willing to justify these, some of these horrible things. You almost can't help but laugh sometimes. But it's, it, it's a tragedy, of course. And this, on the, on the one hand, it is. On the other hand, just thinking about it for too long, you realize how many things like this weren't caught on camera, of course, and it's 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 infinite. And, of course, there's been, it's war, things happen on both sides, but I don't think that you can discount that many of these Ukrainian nationalists realize that they're kind of in their twilight hour, and that even if something like the a victory for the Ukrainian government occurs, this kind of neo-Nazi Ukrainian revanchist, like this state that, you know, hails back to World War II, that's not the vision that's going to move forward for for that country, regardless really of what of what happens with the government side. Those people, these nationalists, these hardcore people that are really the only reason that Ukraine was able to hold out in this prolonged conflict since 2014, 
those people have, are a bit backed into a corner and then there's a lot of willingness to act with revenge. There's been a lot of propaganda against Russians so could put against these people. So, you know, in many ways you perhaps need to use forgiveness and even however disgusting and horrible it may seem, you need to realize, you know, it's almost a forgive them for they know not what they do situation. Not entirely. They very much do know what they do, but it's, 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 it's a sad thing to see, of course. Yeah. And I think, just for the, I suppose, for international optics and even um, in terms of if Ukraine does win the battle at the end of the day and they do come out on top, events such as the ones that took place last week and the shooting of the Russian POWs, it does stain the entire thing in terms of, well, uh, were there any, um, was there any action or any persecution, or, I mean, prosecution taken to against these uh, war criminals, essentially, because shooting POWs on the spot like that is a crime of war. Um, so... Yeah, it really does stain the whole situation for the Ukrainian side. And uh, yeah, definitely it's bizarre seeing Western media really not cover it, or at least throwing out these uh, weird labels such as, well, an alleged shooting of POW as well. Were the POWs really Russian? Maybe it was the other way around. Well, no, the footage is there, the photographs are there. It's quite horrific. I don't recommend anyone really go out to search up these, uh, you know, these materials unless they really... Um, they really want to, but uh, yeah, it's it's just one of those um, pretty, uh, I would say, scary scary news pieces because it really does show, as Connor had mentioned, just how bloody and um, unnerving war can get and conflict and people. It really isn't a Reddit war like some people have been kind of describing it as. It's it's a really serious thing. This is why, um, of course, prayer is needed, and of course, we pray for the souls of the Russians as well as those who killed them. Because look, this is a great stain on their conscience, I think, and on their spiritual, um, on their spiritual uh, life as well. I think it's uh, quite horrific. Of course, we spent the last few episodes mentioning ideas of you know collective repentance and these some of these prophecies we've read about Ukraine and what's necessary to perhaps stop you know worse outcomes and you know worse possible outcomes maybe from happening is. On both sides, repentance is always needed, but in many ways, you know, I've mentioned it before, but Ukraine as an entity has unfortunately been exploited by Western powers as a big, as a hub for drugs, as a hub for sex trafficking and everything. And it's, it's, it's a real tragedy, but that this, that once holy, you know, land that was once, you know, where St. Vladimir was baptized has unfortunately been, been tainted by blood and all sorts of other horrible things. But thankfully, at least World War Three from this Poland thing was averted which is, is a good thing. But on the other hand, I think we might see more about this in the coming days, perhaps. Maybe not. It might be, there might be caveats that haven't been released yet. But as far as I can tell, the much more interesting and much more dynamic uh, World War III-ish now, ish, World War Now, as they say, you know, I wonder where I've heard that before, is coming from this, uh, this Turkey stuff, where uh, it seems that Turkey is in many ways willing to enforce this new oil price ceiling through a blockade on um, the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus Straits, which is, of course, where ultimately where Constantinople is and where, you know, they say Europe and Asia meet, and it's how the Black Sea and Mediterranean Sea are connected. And it's uh, the only way that, you know, Russian ships in their main ports in the Black Sea are able to, you know, get to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's so, right. Uh, it's a it's a big deal, and not only that, but of course, if you follow us on Telegram and if you followed this podcast for a long time, you'll know that Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphou has echoed Saint Paisios's prophecies regarding this, and explicitly said this is literally years ago. Has talked about how they will close the Bosphorus Straits, them being the Turks, 
And as we know up to this point, Erdogan has been probably the friendliest NATO out, the, the friendliest NATO country to Russia this entire time. They've very much rejected a lot of sanctions. They've maintained dialogue. They've wanted to host negotiations. But uh, Metropolitan Neofitos, of course, echoing the saints of the past, said, and their friends, the pseudo friend, their pseudo friends, the Russians, them, of course, being the Turks in the situations, from friends will transform into enemies in one night, and there will not be a single city in Turkey which will not be bombarded. And, you know, that's very dramatic. That's a very dramatic statement. And we hope that something like that doesn't necessarily happen. But it seems that Turkey is uh, willing to move forward. This is very recent, of course, you know, this being recorded on November 19th, 2022. But it's, uh, we're going to be following this very closely. And of course, I said earlier, there might be some caveats, you know, we've seen before with this grain deal and with these other things, there's always these like little underhanded ways that, you know, after the big headlines, after the outrage from the international community, uh, they work it out. And it basically goes back to the status quo. That's that's how these dramatic conflicts and that's how Russia likes to handle things because, you know, they're they're risk averse. But if if what we're seeing is true, it would be a huge deal because it would be a huge shift in Russo-Turkish relations and it would be um, a huge blow to, you know, Russia's very much maintained kind of energy dominance and energy independence in this regard. And uh, there's a whole bunch, slew of other geopolitical uh, consequences for this as well when it comes to Russia's access to the Mediterranean, actually. Yeah, and how these conflicts usually play out, as Conrad mentioned, like, um, you know, even rational uh, risk-averse actors such as Erdogan, Putin, and some of their staff members and ministers notice how even during before World War One, everybody saw Europe as this place of this enlightened, civilized a collection of empires and large nations. And look what happened during World War One. It's like a few things escalated, and I guess the the most you know, I guess civilized in a technological sense nations just went to war against each other in the most violent way possible with you know there was even gas used artillery millions of troops on all sides which was unprecedented no one ever had armies the size that we saw in world war one and things can really get out of hand quite quickly so yeah at the moment erdogan and putin are some probably some of the best active realpolitik politicians out there like who just are incredibly realist they they play the realist international theory to the t like uh, you know they know their they know their international relations theory very well um very good students and of course uh, in, influenced by figures such as alexander dugin and his ideas on geopolitics both of them frankly because dugin does know turkish so it it really is um yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting landscape, and naturally for our English speakers, um, English speakers from countries such as the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, these ANZAC countries would probably recall in World War One there was one particular event, the uh, uh, Battle of Gallipoli, which was a horrendous loss for the Allied forces, which landed at Gallipoli, and it was quite terrible. I'm not sure exactly whose fault it was back then. I'm not sure the theories keep changing every decade or so. As to, you know, they probably say it was the British military command who landed the Australians, New Zealanders, Canadian soldiers on that particular beach at Gallipoli. But the point of Gallipoli was to secure the Bosphorus Dardanelles Straits. So these straits, notice, they were important all the way going back to World War One, a hundred years later. We still hold them in high regard. And for Russia, this is an incredibly poignant, uh, painful issue because... Essentially, it's one of Russia's, it's the only exit out of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean and the larger Atlantic Ocean. If if these Bosphorus Dardanelles Straits are closed, and Turkey has control of the Straits, essentially, and of course, international agreements and such agreements, they keep them, they keep the Straits open. But if anything was to go wrong, if any conflict or diplomatic circumstance would escalate, 
Turkey could simply close the straits and Russian ships, whether they be trade ships, military vessels, um, they just simply couldn't go through without Turkish consent. And this is uh, what essentially Conrad is getting to. And this could easily escalate into a hot conflict and even worse, a uh, you know, potential world war. Oh, yeah. I mean, and this is, of course, something that, I mean, since I believe episode one of this show, we've predicted Russo-Turkish relations eventually going from good to very bad very quickly, as uh, Metropolitan Neofitos talked about. And I think, again, we've talked about the Turkish elections coming up in 2023. This will only increase if Erdogan is uh, ousted, and perhaps maybe even if he isn't ousted, he will be facing immense pressure from the West to, you know, play by their rules. And, um, in fact, we even saw... Turkey blaming the U.S. for the terrorist attacks in their country recently. I mean, we saw those huge explosions in Istanbul, which are tragic. And they, of course, arrested, you know, suspects immediately. And they've now renewed extremely uh, intense strikes in northern Syria, even beyond the buffer zone that was agreed on, which is also something that might not please the Russians, because I think the Russians had have tried very hard to broker the strict you know, line and demilitarized zone between Turkey and the Assad government and the occupied you know, zone in Turkey, where Turkey is doing their own kind of version of a special military operation, really more of a, a, an elevation, a, a level up with a counterterrorism operation where they're fighting Kurdish insurgents and Kurdish terrorists that they really have had a problem with for a long time. And that's, of course, who is being blamed. But Turkey blames, you know, the U.S. and all sorts of other Western countries for blacking the, for backing the PKK, you know, the the Kurdish separatist groups and these people. And you know, when it comes to Syria as well, you know, Russia's there and uh, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles are very important to uh, to Russia's presence in Syria. I also wanted to mention just the fact that um, during two th from 2017 all the way until, uh, I guess, until the end of the Syria, Syria campaign in 2021, and I mean the Russian Syrian campaign, not the American campaign, which Donald Trump also had. Uh, that was about four years, and there was huge, I guess, risks involved there, which were mentioned by Igor Stadilkov, as well as, say, people like Kvachkov, Maxim Kalashnikov from Reutove, all these huge Russian um, political as well as military analysts, even even uh, Konstantin Dushenov from Pravoslavne uh, Rus YouTube channel, like these big uh, 100,000 you know, audience channels, which kept mentioning the fact that, and mind you, these channels are somewhat pro-Russian as well, pro-Putin, uh, that is. So they agreed with the Syria campaign in, in essence, but they did say the risks were in the fact that the Russian military and the Navy was stationed in uh, Tartus at, uh, in, in Syria, but they were essentially trapped in the Mediterranean if Turkey even decided to close off the Bosphorus Dardanelles Straits. Russia could not send its fleet back home. They would be stuck in, in the Mediterranean and, of course, subject to the will of NATO, which uh, the NATO North Atlantic Treaty Organization Turkey is a member of. So, mind you, it's not like Russia can just take on Turkey. Turkey is an ally of NATO and... Uh, there really is no option where Russia simply has an argument and then goes to war with Turkey without, say, starting a world war. Um, unless, of course, NATO breaks up, which might be the outcome of this current Ukrainian crisis, with NATO simply uh, obviously not functioning as it should. Like we mentioned, Conrad mentioned the fact that Article 4 took place recently with Poland, so NATO came together, discussed security. But Article 5, even though Poland was literally hit by an anti-air missile and civilians died, NATO civilians, members of the European Union, passed away. Still, Article 5 did not take place. NATO did not intervene in Ukraine. So notice NATO isn't exactly functioning as it's supposed to. So I'm wondering if maybe the breakup of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization will kind of lead into the fact that maybe Russia will 
uh, flex its muscles in Turkey or in the sort of Middle Eastern region as well. So there are, yeah, so Russians have been aware of this risk of the Bosphorus and Dardanelles Straits closing, but now it's actually becoming a, a, an unfortunate reality that uh, if Turkish-Russian relations do sour in the next uh, year or two, or maybe even five, uh, things may escalate very quickly. Now, we'll be watching this closely just in case something happens in the next few days, of course. We hope something doesn't happen, but, you know, we never know. We People weren't necessarily expecting the SMO to start when it did, so it's it's we, we, we always stay on our toes around these times. But, yeah, no, with, uh, with, with Turkey and Russia, there is... Uh, there are many uh, in the past. They've of course fought in the in the Black Sea over influence. I mean, that's we've spoken in the past how if Russia is to go with the option of connecting to Transnistria, controlling all of the Black Sea coast of Ukraine, Turkey would have a problem with that. That would be a big sphere of influence issue for them, and for Russia now to realize that this issue is on the table, they're going to have to really weigh the options. And I don't know exactly how. If there's a contingency plan in place for something like that, I don't exactly know how it would go down, but it definitely would make sense that NATO would easily break up before something like that would happen. Because, I mean, currently, Turkey is the only reason that NATO hasn't, you know, expanded drastically because they're holding up Finland and Sweden because Finland and Sweden seem to be holding back on deporting PKK, you know, Kurdish terrorists that they're holding. And so Turkey's like, yeah, we're never going to, like, sign your accession into NATO. And, I mean, that might eventually get worked out, but, you know, perhaps the U.S., due to other things, may be willing to just cut Turkey loose and then gain those other two countries and gain a, you know, 1,200-mile-long land border with Russia via Finland. Yeah, just, just wanted to mention real quick that, historically speaking, Turkey and Russia have been at odds for the last 500, 600 years at least. And this goes back to the fact that Turkey, or the Ottoman Empire, as it was known back in the day, did take over Constantinople at the old... Byzantium, as it's known in the history books. So Russia did understand its role as this protector of Orthodox small minorities in the Middle East. And that, of course, kind of pushed it towards, say, accentuating relations with the Turkish Empire at the time. So Russia and Turkey did fight a lot throughout the last, say, 400, 500 years at least. And this needs to be taken note of. Um, it's not like uh, any new escalation of hostilities between Russia and Turkey will be some sort of unprecedented event in world history. No, this has taken place many times in the past. So let's not be too surprised. And that's why me and Conrad see it as absolutely a possibility and why some of these prophecies um, told to us by St. Payasin and expoused, explained by Metropolitan Neophytos do sound extremely um, realistic. And of course, a prophecy doesn't need to sound realistic for it to be true, but this is not out of the ordinary whatsoever. Oh, and with so much other stuff that's already come to pass regarding how the Ukraine war started with the schism and, and with, with with COVID and this other stuff, I think it's safe to say that we're we're the, the, the we're following people that are batting batting a hundred, as they might say. But when it comes to uh, you know Turkey and Russia and Russia's historic enemies, I think even before World War One, that's when Russia might have started saying Germany, but they might even have said. Uh, <laughs> they might even say uh, England was their uh, biggest enemy for a while. You know, the, the Anglos, who many would say influenced in pitting them against the Germans for two wars and, you know, alienating the two, those two land empires forever. But I think when it comes to Russia and Turkey, it's very much, I mean, they're clashing by proxies all over the place. We've mentioned this before, but in Syria, of course, there's, there's hostilities because there's, there's all sorts of different groups fighting other insurgencies in libya turkish and russian proxies are directly fighting you know wagner is there 
there's a few other, I mean, in Egypt and other places, Russia and Turkey and Turkish interests don't align. So it's in any way surprising that Turkey and Russian statesmen and the governments have such a cozy relationship still. Meanwhile, their proxies are like actively fighting all over, all over the world, frankly. Mm. And of course, uh, staying in this sort of Mediterranean theater, I think we should discuss the fact that the Church of Cyprus, which is an autocephalous independent Orthodox jurisdiction, which goes back to the goes back to the 400s AD. Actually, it's quite an ancient independent jurisdictional church in the mid in the Middle East. So the Church of Cyprus, which is uh, Greek run, but also of course has some of the native people involved as well, and now of course Turkish citizens too, because as you know, Cyprus is divided into two. There's Northern Cyprus and Southern Cyprus, which the northern side is is essentially, or I guess it's Eastern and Western, but yeah, one side is controlled by Turkey and one by one is independent. So uh, it's just this concern that the Church of Cyprus recently will, I mean, quite soon will be electing a new archbishop, which is a huge role to play because the previous archbishop was quite anti-Russian in sentiment. I think me and Conrad, we're just going to discuss this slightly because this is more of a church issue. How does this relate to geopolitics? Well, I guess if there will be uh, an escalation of uh, diplomacy and warfare. It'll be very important to understand the stance of the Greek hierarchs, which have a great presence in Turkey, exactly what their opinions of, of Russia is. Um, yeah, just kind of wanted to ask you about that, Conrad. What's your opinion about the recent, um, the upcoming Cyprus Cypriot elections? Well, no, it's very funny that we talk about it like elections. Like, sure, synods do elections, but in Cyprus, they do it very, like, literally every Orthodox Christian over the age of 18 gets to vote, and the three uh, hierarchs to get the most votes, or the three eligible candidates to get the most votes, are then taken to the synod to have the vote done on them. So it's a, it's a very interesting system. I don't know if it's the best one or not, but it is the system that's there. And yeah, and I mean, Cyprus is a very ancient sea. I mean, it's been autocephalous since the since the fourth century. It was uh, you know started by the apostle Barnabas, and in many ways. It was it was actually originally under the See of Antioch, but then um, I believe it was at the Second Ecumenical Council was granted autocephaly, and this is used and explained very well by a Metropolitan Nikiforos of Kikos, who is a Metropolitan on Cyprus, when he wrote the book uh, uh, "The Ecclesiastical The Schism in Ukraine and its and its Ecclesiastical Solutions" or something like that. It's a good book. We'll link it in the description. But it really is the best. Uh, explanation and book that from a hierarch that I believe everyone should read on the schism in Ukraine. He explains that uh, the precedent of Cyprus, with its autocephaly being granted at an ecumenical council, with you know permission and uh, Thomas autocephaly from its uh, its mother see of Antioch, is all the proof you need to show that what uh, Bartholomew and the uh, ecumenical patriarch did in Ukraine, granting them a Thomas of autocephaly against the wishes of of their mother of you know their. Uh, of their patriarchate in Moscow is just completely against against tradition, and Cyprus, of course, is, of course, as uh, Dmitri mentioned, split in two, and it's occupied by the northern part, which is just effectively just Turkey, and then the the southern part of Cyprus, which is you know the people there identify as Greek, but they're Cypriot, that's their nationality, and it's a pretty cosmopolitan place in some ways, but at the same time, most of the hierarchs there are very holy, very stalwart. Not just on the issues of the schism in Ukraine, but on issues like COVID, on issues like uh, the the council in Crete recently, which was uh, some call an ecumenical council. Most in the church call it uh, not that, uh, as well as just a slew of other cultural issues and, and whatnot. And 
Uh, the two leading candidates right now for Archbishop of Cyprus are Metropolitan Neophytos, who we speak about a lot on the show, and uh, Metropolitan Athanasios, uh, who I believe of Limassol, is that who it is? And he uh, is... There's a poll that has been put out, and Metropolitan Athanasios had 30, well, was polling at 31%, where Metropolitan Neophytos was in second at 18%, and then the others were quite far behind. All I think no one was above 7% besides them. But either way, those two, Metropolitan Neophytos, Metropolitan Athanasios, would clearly be two of the three sent before the Synod, and many are hoping it'll be Metropolitan Neophytos. And uh, there's there's people I support that know Metropolitan Neophytos that seem to be supporting him for this, and there's people in Cyprus that have supported him. In fact, I was going to read very quickly uh, something that was said about him. I translated this through Google Translate, so sorry if it's not the best. But uh, this is a it's like a Facebook group of Cypriots supporting Metropolitan Neophytos for uh, for Archbishop, and uh, they say. One of the reasons that they support him is that with unparalleled courage and personal cost, he supported the orthodox positions in modern challenges and trials, such as the Kolomvari Synod, the Crete Synod, the Ukrainian issue, and the coronavirus epidemic, and did not hesitate to highlight the prophetic word of the ancient and modern saints who prophesied about what we are living today and what we are expected to live. And I think that's, that's, that's fantastic, and I think it would be fantastic if somebody like that was one of the heads of one of the autocephalous Orthodox churches, one of the most ancient at that. That being said, Metropolitan Athanasios is a fantastic hierarch as well. He is all the correct opinions when it comes to Ukraine and ecclesiology and whatnot, and the Orthodox opinions, I should say. And he would be, I think, a fantastic archbishop. And there's even arguments to be made that do you want, you know, someone like Metropolitan Neophytos, who's such a living link to the saints and such a great teacher, like, do you want him taking on more ecclesial and more uh you know administrative burdens i mean that's that's a fair point but you know i think this is the kind of thing that the holy spirit decides so we'll leave it up to him i guess yeah i think it's it's still like the ball is still up in the air as to who's going to be elected but what a great endorsement for metropolitan uh um you know the, the metropolitan of morphu this is just the kind of a living example of a patriarchal elections which are going to be like which whatever the outcome in the end it'll be extremely positive for the you know the greek people of cyprus and i mean even i suppose the turkish citizens who are technically still under the omophora of you know that particular hierarchy because he's the archbishop of not remember the orthodox church isn't uh ethnophilitist and it's you know in the way it functions right i'm not telling conrad i'm telling any viewers who aren't really familiar just because the the bishop is greek doesn't mean he is not the bishop of the turkish people too he is actually anyone living in his jurisdiction are technically his children whom he cares for um that being the orthodox children and so it's really it's really kind of enlightening uh, just that fact and this goes back to of course russia and ukraine as well because people are saying well how can a russian bishop um, say, look after and tend to Ukrainian flock. Well, it's because uh, the Russian church is also extremely um, multicultural. Like Russian, the Russian church includes within itself some of the Chinese diocese. There's a Chinese, there's a Russian mission in Mongolia and Japan and South Korea. Russian, just because it's named the Russian church, it doesn't mean it's strictly for Russians. It could be for Ukrainians, Belarusians, etc., Finnish people too. So uh, it really is a multicultural thing. And like this election in Cyprus, um, Looking forward to maybe maybe even having a saint or you know a clairvoyant elder metropolitan such as uh, you know such as the current metropolitan of Morfu. It would be good to have him kind of maybe tend some of the wounds which 
haven't really healed since the civil war on Cyprus between the Turks and the Greeks. I think you need you need really saintly leadership in order to unite a certain people and you know I guess a certain geographical land. I think that's the only, that's the best case for peace. And you know we hope for that in the Ukraine too. But at the moment it seems like no matter who's leading uh, the flock in Ukraine or in Russia, this conflict has just gone so out of hand. The devil is just really at work over there so hopefully cyprus will see a sort of blossoming of peace and geopolitical diplomacy and ecclesiological harmony there i think that's what we can hope for well and if you really listen to uh what metropolitan neophytos has talked about in the past he's spoken about uh what's going to happen to cyprus if perhaps you know this large conflict between russia and turkey this third world war breaks out and he He's, he's, he's spoken about Cyprus, there's not going to be any actual fighting because the Turkish occupation troops will retreat from Turkey to go fight the Russians. And he says that it'll be the duty of the Cypriot church to evangelize those Muslim and secular Turks in the north. And if he is, of course, the head of the church, you know, that, that vision might be something that's more capable of being achieved. But at the same time, he's still always going to be an influential uh, part of the Church of Cyprus as long as he's alive. Remember, he's only 60 years old, so he's not particularly old. And he is also, his, uh, you know, Metropolia, Morfu, if you look at it on a map, it's mostly actually in the Turkish-occupied area. And so it makes, it's, it's very apt that he is uh, eager and willing to, and he's a, he's a student of Greek, he is a fan of Hellenism, a supporter of Hellenism, a, you know, he's very much a supporter of the Greek, you know, political, you know, resistance against the Turkish yoke, that tradition, but... That has no effect on his desire to, you know, evangelize to the people around him and his neighbor, which is just a beautiful thing, of course. And, uh, you know, I think we should pray, of course, for this election. And, and if you're Orthodox, I think it's something that you should always be praying for the hierarchs around the world. I think every night in your evening prayers, it's something that I at least try to do. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting times. And like Dimitri said, you know, we've talked about perhaps parts of Russia being spared from Antichrist. St. Gabriel Ergabadze speaks about Georgia maybe being protected from Antichrist. Metropolitan Yofitos seems to think Cyprus, well, he says that they will still need donkeys to travel and they might not have food. They seem to not face, face fighting. So it seems that the saints are communicating to us that there are ways through prayer, repentance, and some forms of preparation that you can, that, that we can weather out this impending storm in some way. So, you know, always be vigilant and and just, you know, don't always be despairing, even if things might seem bad. You know, there's always, we, we know who wins in the end. Yeah, I think people, and I guess most folks listening, they could use this as a kind of like a leeway to kind of maybe search up the history of Cyprus a little bit. Cyprus has a really interesting history, even going back into the Crusades. Um, the last king of, the last Catholic king of Jerusalem, frankly, when Saladin did take Jerusalem, he was, uh, he left to go live on Cyprus, Guy de Lusignan. And funny enough, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, Conrad, but his uh, his descendants, Guy de Lusignan, ended up, his descendants left Cyprus eventually, and they moved back to France, where they're, you know, they're French nobility. This is way following a lot later than the Crusades, and they lived in France all, all the way until the French Revolution in the early 1800s. And guess which country they moved to eventually? The Lusignan family. Where? Uh, well, to the Russian Empire, under... Emperor Nicholas I, which took place during the Crimean War, and there was, there was even discussion that, well, if Russia does defeat Turkey in the Crimean War and onwards, that, well, if Russia does eventually take Palestine and Jerusalem, they're going to need a new king of Jerusalem. I know this sounds ludicrous, but yes, this was a real discourse in the Russian uh, diplomatic court, and they said, well, we have this uh, 
I have this prince uh, of de Lusignan, right? Whose descendants were from the kings of Cyprus, the Catholic kings of Cyprus and Jerusalem. We can just put him on the on the throne of Jerusalem. So Russia was the Russian Empire in the middle eight, middle of the 1800s was literally thinking about reinstating the uh, Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. Now, just for reference, how far Russia fought, and you can say, yes, this is kind of hubris, this is outrageous, but yeah, this is almost like Assassin's Creed level, like lore. Basically, Russia was really forward thinking in terms of like, it had really long-term plans as opposed to what to do in certain circumstances, which to date seems are somewhat absent, at least from, uh, we've seen that Russia is kind of just doing things willy-nilly in terms of, well, it's kind of adapting to circumstances as it goes along. But yeah, Cyprus has a very interesting history. I do recommend everybody read about it, especially now, the upcoming elections. It, it's not just a random Greek island in the middle of the Mediterranean or on the side or... It's, it's really a rich, it has a rich history. I recommend everybody kind of look into it. It's just for self-education. Yeah, absolutely. No, and it's, it's so, people don't realize, I mean, it's so close to, to Jerusalem and these places that it's, it's, a, it's a very, very relevant little piece of the old world. And uh, no, it's just so funny you're talking about the Russia reinstating, you know, a crusader king. It's like, man, these, these, these Paradox Games mods are just getting out of hand, it seems. But, <laughs> but no, I think... Uh, yeah, we've talked a lot about Turkey in that area. I want to just get Dimitri's thoughts a little bit on the, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. I think people will be watching that closely. I think it's important to recognize that Turkey is one of the few players right now that is very much somewhat sovereign, acting on its own volition still, and hasn't completely conformed to the, you know, just subservience to the United States that the rest of NATO really has. So it's it's an interesting country to watch. It has elections coming up. Erdogan, he's a... You know, he's a bit of a wild card, but I think as we're as we're seeing the bombs continue to fly in uh, in Syria from Turkey, it's a big renewed campaign. As the report that I read, I mean, that was from Bloomberg. It seems that most after December fifth, most Russian ships will not be able to get that insurance that's needed to go through, and therefore the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus would be effectively closed. If that is true and that happens, I would anticipate some some pretty interesting escalations, to say the least. Yeah, I think it's it's just noteworthy to just keep an eye on the Middle East. Things things have not really slowed down anywhere, and of course the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict as well be between Armenia and Azerbaijan. That's always bound to flare up right on Turkey's side. So everyone's a little bit tense at the moment. Um, there are of course the fake news relating to Iran, Persia, like executing protesters, and you know the um, Trudeau like humiliating himself, uh, tweeting really. Uh, pretty much just tweeting misinformation or fake news so the middle east is always active it's always um worth speaking about that uh sort of subject is is really a, we can almost do an entire show about the middle east and just the news that happens week to week there's just so much there i think it's um frankly it's, it's interesting just the, the way people um now of course associate the middle east with of course islam which of course the middle east is the home of islam but it also is the home of orthodox christianity which is why we bring up just the fact that these Christians, yes, they are still a minority, but they occupy these ancient, ancient lands and they've lived there for hundreds of years, despite all the conflicts and all the wars and the famines and other disasters that have taken place. So it's always important to watch the Christian minority groups in the Middle East and exactly what's going on there, who's being elected and into which diocese. These places are where history does still take place, uh, despite this relative size and, of course, influence over, say, world affairs. It's true, and as a proud member of the Orthodox Church of Antioch, Archdiocese of North America, I mean, we currently have a Metropolitan Vicar appointed who is overseeing the Archdiocese while we prepare for an election of a new Metropolitan, and he is 
from Syria. He actually, no, he's from Lebanon. He was the uh, abbot of a monastery in Lebanon and has issued some very strong statements on you know some of the cultural issues in America. So we're all hopeful for that. But this is all very relevant to us because I mean you know on a semi-weekly basis the Israeli government bombs Damascus and that's where the head of my church, the Patriarch of Antioch, that's where he lives. You know, so this is all this is all very relevant to Orthodox Christians around the world. But we're going to pivot a little bit away from this part of the world and talk about something a bit random and a bit funny. I mean, Kim Jong-un, he's been a bit of a constant character in the Donbass-Ukraine conflict, even outside of its worldwide implications. You know, he was one of the only world leaders present at, I believe it was, was it the recognition of their independence or their uh, accession into Russia? One of those two, he was the only one present for that, which is uh, very humorous, I think. And you know, North Korea is, of course, always a stalwart vote in the UN for Russia on this issue, but Kim Jong-un decided to reveal his daughter to the world for the first time, and uh, I'm, this was recent, this is, you know, mid-November 2022, and the picture he posted was in front of a very large, I guess the largest missile that North Korea has. It's a very aesthetic photo. It goes, it goes hard, as they might say. But I think it, uh, it, it's very funny. It's just, it's just, I think it's funny seeing these, you know, it's so much more fun to watch these quote unquote dictators than it is to pay attention in these, you know, supposed democracies because, you know, you get fantastic stuff like Lukashenko just going on diatribes about McDonald's, uh, you know, Putin going on these fantastic, you know, well-written historical speeches, these sorts of things. And then Kim Jong-un posting this like deeply like phallic symbol while he, you know, proves that he has, you know, spread his seed and has offspring in this image, this, you know, propaganda image that I'm now telling you about in the English language. I think it's a very, uh, it's it's just a lot more interesting to pay attention to those sorts of things than it is to, to you know, keep up with the latest, the latest midterm fail in some of, in some, some, some countries that will not be named. That's, of course, it's all very important, American politics, Western politics, it's important, but, you know, it's fun to pay attention to the places where perhaps the curtain is pulled back a little bit more. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not an expert on exactly um, Far East and phallic uh, pagan festivals, but I do know Japan has a particular, like, a festival called the Kanamare Matsuri, which essentially is just a pagan uh, worship and veneration of, um, you know, genitalia. And I'm just not sure, maybe Korea still has leftovers. I know it's technically a, a predominantly atheistic communist state, but perhaps there is some of that leftover from these uh, old sort of worship of, say, body parts and nature and things of that nature. Like, I'm really not sure. A lot of people are saying that the old uh, Egyptian cults of yeah, not the cults, but the, the, the obelisks, right? The obelisks standing in Washington, D.C. Of course, all the... And now, it's of course, they say it's Masonic, but it, obviously it's pre-Masonic because, you know, there's one near the Vatican. There's even an obelisk in Russia itself. like some, And in Constantinople had several, actually, uh, brought over by some of the Orthodox emperors from Egypt. It's just... Uh, yeah, some of these old symbols from the ancient world, they still come up in, you know, modern, relatively uh, up-to-date media and these stories, and it's just uh, really bizarre. Really, times haven't really changed. As long as you're paying attention and you know some of these historical facts and analogies, it's quite interesting. You see the world in a really different light. Um, yeah, so I'm glad Kim Jong-un has at least some successorship, because we've seen his sister, I believe, a few years ago, showed up for the first time while he was sick, so it was really interesting seeing her kind of command things and so to speak command a room she really did have this presence similar to him his daughter of course is very young i take it she's a teenager at this point but yeah um it'll be interesting to see exactly what this uh future i guess royal house of korea what it ends up you know 
um, becoming. I think it's, uh, well, of course, my theory still stands, just as I tweeted you know, a couple months ago, I still think the best outcome for Korea, as an, or as an Orthodox Christian, I'm saying this, that uh, Korea, you know, becoming, becoming Orthodox collectively from top down, by having Kim Jong-un baptized his nation into orthodoxy, similar to how St. Vladimir of Kiev baptized Russia uh, a thousand years ago, I think that would be the most relative and positive outcome. So, look, having a Korean royal house, I'm all for it, personally, but of course, this is we're getting into like the Reddit meme territory, so a little bit away from reality, but look, that's still the hope for me, and that's based on orthodox uh, tradition too, so... Well, no, and the, you know there are Orthodox churches in Korea that do practice, and I'm not making any comment on religious repression in North Korea. Just stating an interesting fact: there's some cool aesthetics with Korean Russian churches. But I think, you know, there's one argument to be made that North Korea is just kind of a CIA meme state, and it's a bit for show, and it's kind of used to influence Russia and China on its periphery. But that, that that's one theory. But there's also something to be said that perhaps. You know, Korea being the, the being targeted so much because it does have this unilateral ability with the with with its Juche government to act, and it has a you know one of the largest still has one of the largest militaries, very militarized nation. With, with all that being said, it's wonder. I'm just wondering if you know Kim is kind of trying to set the stage for a more, like you said, maybe a more public facing, dynastic, traditional kind of vibe. Because I believe his wife, since I believe 2018, has now been identified as in public as like first lady like like venerable first lady or something like that whereas before that she was just like comrade and wasn't spoken about as much so it seems that you know there might be some shifts in the public in the public facing for for the kim the kim dynasty yeah absolutely i i think it's also i mean it brings us back to that uh, like korea is sort of the geopolitically speaking korea wasn't really on the map until recently in terms of like a well by recently i mean of course there was the korean wars which the america you know america and china took took a part in some in the soviet union partially as well but besides that korea was really just a battlefield for world war ii world war one and even the russo-japanese war so it was kind of like this uh middle this peninsula this middle ground between all these great powers fighting for influence and now finally korea for the first time and maybe hundreds of years since like ancient times has taken on its own independent um at least the we're speaking about north korea here has taken on this independent position where it can actually make decisions for itself and it's really curious how that's going to evolve and of course all nations have a certain childhood and then an adolescence and nations in a way just like people they grow they you know they're born in a certain uh, environment circumstance and and some nations are a little bit uh, depraved and weird, such as Ukraine. But that's, uh, you know, that's my personal opinion. North Korea, we see, has really taken on its own kind of stance, this post-Korean War independence that, look, we are separate from the Western world. We are, but we aren't really vassals of China either. We're kind of this own, our own independent thing. But I guess uh, bringing this back, um, I guess linking this to the... because. You know, one of the conflicts, Conrad, that took place over Korea over at a hundred years ago was the conflict between Japan and Russia, the Russo-Japanese War. And if you recall, the Russian uh, metropolitan at the time, the, actually the bishop of Japan, uh, actually allowed the Japanese to pray for for their own country while they were at war with Russia, which was interesting because you have Russia, an Orthodox empire, fighting Japan, a pagan, a pagan empire, and this Japan did have some Orthodox Christians in its army, and so we have the Bishop of Japan saying, look, you can actually pray for your country to win, and you can pray for your own people while they fight other Orthodox people, which I guess this is one of the first times we see a bishop openly allowing such a thing, don't you reckon? 
Well, I won't speak entirely about Orthodox history. There might be some other examples. I mean, you could maybe even cite the examples of, you know, you know, Roman soldiers and many saints were blessed to still fight in the Roman army, despite, you know, the fact that the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians. It wasn't considered a sin to, you know, serve in the legion or something like that. But as far as, you know, the explicit fighting of an Orthodox empire, you know, that was something that didn't exist at the time of the Romans. So it took a little bit for tradition to have this. So I won't speak authoritatively on tradition, but St. Nikolai of Japan is definitely kind of cited as this example of being, you know, Americans kind of will even cite him saying, like, you know, there's nothing wrong with supporting my country when it's at war. And I don't, I don't believe there's anything wrong with supporting veterans, supporting your soldiers, supporting, you know, even military heroes of, of, of even bad military causes who exhibited honor on the battlefield between, you know, their troops and their friends. But I think uh, there's a kind of incident we want to touch on regarding Ukraine that kind of poses a bit of an interesting question. There are still examples, especially as an American in this conflict, where your, the perception of these nations and the perception of the conflict will directly influence, for example, America's involvement in said conflict. And I think from that regard, it's important to not... That's that's why I'm actually extremely wary and careful of anything pro-Ukrainian, because I know the goal, ultimately, with many actors in our government would be to have boots on the ground from that narrative, from the pro-Ukraine, anti-Russian narrative. And I think, uh, in many ways, there's... Uh, there's cases even from the Orthodox perspective due to the schism and the persecution going on where you might want to be wary of wholeheartedly and entirely, you know, without question, supporting the Ukrainian government right now. Yeah, I think the Ukrainian church is in a similar position to maybe what St. Nicholas faced in those days, except for the fact that St. Nicholas even, he asked the Russian Synod for permission in order to allow his Japanese flock to pray for um to pray for, you know, to pray for their country's victory. And he himself did not participate actively in those things. And in fact, he, well, how did he occupy his time while his country was at war? I guess both of his home nations were, were Japan and Russia. Well, he, he tended to the Russian prisoners of war, which was what um, eventually gave him, Russia was so grateful that he looked after these Russian prisoners, visited them in these camps. He kept active as opposed to just simply virtue signaling the entire time. So, and he was eventually awarded uh, the rank of Archbishop of Japan. Um, so that was one of his, uh, I suppose, great achievements. And one of his great virtues, why he is a saint, is because he did tend to the sick and the wounded. Um, now, about this Ukraine story Conrad mentioned, yeah, this was uh, a bit of a contentious issue. I'll say, I'll say this pretty openly, and it hasn't really been spoken about only, only because... It is, it falls in this weird gray area of like, well, who can the Orthodox, who should, actually, no, who should the Orthodox people pray for, especially if you're in Ukraine at the moment? Like, should you pray for Russians to free Ukraine from, say, the yoke of Zelensky and his government and the globalists? Or should you pray for Zelensky and the globalists because they're protecting, say, Ukrainian independence? I mean, it really is a bit up in the air. Maybe I'm framing it a little bit uh in a biased way, but for example, so this is the story, right? Uh, for better or for worse. So Metropolitan Anufri had some priests, and this I'm not sure if, whose blessing they had, which bishop allowed them to do this, but several priests in the Ukrainian military. So the Ukrainian military does have certain military chaplains who participate and they confess and give communion to Ukrainian Orthodox troops, which is well and good. They had, they, they took several relics of saints, including relics of St. Alexander Nevsky, Saints uh, Boris and Gleb, all these really old Russian relics, like small, of course, we're talking about very small bits of relics and all these miracle working objects. They took them to the Ukrainian front lines to, say, some of the bases in Izum, in uh, Zaporozhye, and of course, probably even Kherson at this point, because the story broke out just slightly before Kherson was taken. 
and they basically took these relics to these places and funny enough the relics belong to russian saints who fought for fought for the russian empire and the question arises well you have ukrainian orthodox people praying to russian saints so praying and asking them to help them into they're they're asking ukrainian they're asking russian saints uh to help them in defeating russia and russian orthodox people. like it really doesn't make sense it's similar to i mean the thing i tweeted of course was that well it's similar to orthodox members of nato praying to saint lazarus while they bomb belgrade and take kosovo from the serbians which of course is nonsense so it really is this gray area where i guess orthodox theologians really need to kind of explain to us orthodox uh, laymen how this how this works exactly um is it possible to pray for a saint who belonged to a certain nation so to defeat um you know to defeat that nation like it, you, do you see kind of the gray area conrad i know it's kind of debatable and it really is up in the air and i found this a little really contentious when i heard the story i think it is and i think especially when you think about it logically like saint Fyodor ushakov and some of these some of these people where they really were fighting for the russian empire and that was when ukraine itself was part of the russian empire and it's again i think in many ways if you're ukrainian and regardless of your political positions you could of course ask for the intercession of these saints and maybe if you got drafted, you could ask for their intercession for protection on the battlefield and whatnot. I don't think we're disputing something like that. But we know that, you know, services in both nations are held for, you know, and they pray for victory and they pray for their nation and everything. And I mean, even here in America, my parish, we pray for, you know, all those affected by the conflict. So we, you know, we're not, we're, that's, that's what we're praying for. But I think the, uh, I think it raises some interesting questions regarding, you know, nation and that kind of thing which unfortunately is lost in you know in today's society and people will many think like this is ridiculous like you're you're this ancient you're like the people will call what we're talking about outdated in general but i think i mean we've said it before on the show but at the end of the day in revelation it talks about the nations will come before and be judged you know that's how that's how that's how we kind of are gathered together at the end of all things it's not nation is not an irrelevant category yeah and i think secular folks can call it whatever they like and uh, at the end of the day this even if they call it, say, this is the religious PR, right? It did matter. It mattered during World War II as to whom Hitler supported. Did Hitler open up Orthodox churches in Belarus and Ukraine? Yes, he did. Why did he do that? Was it to to ask the Russians to pray for Nazi Germany in the Third Reich? No, it was, well, it was a PR stunt, essentially. It was to get Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainian locals to support the Third Reich's conquest of the Soviet Union. So, uh, like using religion in politics and especially geopolitical conflicts is, of course, uh, is of course a real tactic so if secular people want to view this as that that's possible but there's also the at the end of the day if you if you are a christian you're thinking beyond simply the pr aspect of the whole thing like because saints we believe are alive in heaven they're not just deceased dead people from the past they're not just historical figures like Gaius julius caesar or alexander the great who we we keep bringing up no these people are alive in heaven we pray to them at services we name people after them we have names days and things of that nature these saints are active in the world they're miracle workers and so to actually pray for them is a is an active like it's part of the living church tradition and so this these things really do matter to us to some extent i I do think it's really up in the air, and frankly, Metropolitan Anufri has not really, and I'm not, I'm not really attacking him, but he hasn't been very helpful in this regard. He has really taken this really quiet stance where he doesn't comment on any of these things. He's not commenting on the persecution. He's not commenting on the relics. He's really, and of course, he's in a precarious position of coercion. Zelensky and his ministers, the the neo-Nazi stormtroopers, they're always basically at the door of the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, where Metropolitan Anufri and the, he's the 
By the way, Metropolitan Onufri is the leader of the Ukrainian Orthodox people. So he has this pressure on him to support Zelensky and his government, and he really cannot speak openly without coercion. This is why he's mostly quiet on all these contentious issues. And yeah, look, I, I don't think that's for the better, because we have we have had saints in the past, I'm sure you know, Conrad, from church history, that um, when contentious issues did arise, the saints actually did speak up. And yes, some of them were killed. Some of them were martyred, beaten, put into prison. But they spoke out anyway. And I, of course, I can't can't really judge Metropolitan Anufri for not speaking. Maybe this is the best scenario. I, it's hard to say. But anyway, it's a very painful sort of situation here. So we'll kind of see how it plays out at this point. And we're just providing commentary and context to this these particular events relating to the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. So it's not it's not really an irrelevant issue. It is a matter of what the people in Ukraine and in Russia believe, because a lot of them are really, I mean, you've seen the religious imagery. There are huge flags of the face of Christ, icon flags being used in the conflict. It is it is more growing, it's, I mean, it's growing in its religious, religious imagery, even if that imagery is, say, pagan and, you know, in the Azov Idar battalion. So, yeah, we'll just see how this plays out. But at this point, I think it's wise to pay attention to exactly uh, what is going on on the ground. Well, in many ways, I said this on Restoring Order with Patrick. Uh, I mentioned that I think from an American perspective and an Orthodox perspective, I would think best case scenario is Russia achieves its maximalist territorial gains in the in this conflict. And in many ways, I view that as the best way to achieve fundamental unity within the church. Because, I'm sorry, if Russia controls more territory than not, there will be no risk of schismatic violence and any other schismatics in the part of the country will be, they'll just be less relevant and they'd be less willing to engage in their schismatic activity. And we'd be much more likely to see unity across all of Ukraine on ecclesiastical boundaries and regard. So I think that's, that's something I hope and pray for. And again, if, if it's not how it goes down, I still hope unity can be achieved and I pray for that, but that's what, uh, that's kind of what we're working with there. But yeah, no, when it comes to all of that, we have seen hierarchs stand up to things in this regard, of course. I mean, every Sunday at my parish, we pray for Metropolitan Paul, who was uh, kidnapped by ISIS over nine years ago in Syria. And um, it's pretty obvious, considering he wasn't ever trotted out as a convert to Islam, I pretty we're all pretty sure that he is no longer with us and is a martyr for the faith. But we... Uh, we, we still pray for him. We haven't had it confirmed. But, and in that same regard, I mean, Metropolitan Leofitos himself, he was hauled before court multiple times for not locking down, for continuing the services, for not masking, and all these kinds of things. So there, there are many examples today of, of people who have stood up to the authorities. And Metropolitan Onufri has done a good job and has, done, has managed to protect his flock and guide you know, them, uh, people who have been tempted with this, this, this tantalizing fruit of schism from, with Western benefits behind it. He's managed to you know, guide many of them away from that, but you know, we need to be praying for him because the pressure is very much on. But moving a bit away from that, we got to talk about a few other things, like uh, as we're recording this, just, just in just recently, Donald Trump back on Twitter. Does, we're not sure if he's going to be using it or not. He's hinted that he won't, that he likes Truth Social better, but in a few days' time, we who knows? You know, Maybe he forgot his password or something, and he just needs to find it, but... Uh, it's a big day for free speech on Twitter. Unfortunately, Elon said he wasn't interested in bringing back Alex Jones, but, you know, baby steps, I guess. Baby steps. Yeah, I think Alex Jones uh, not coming back is one of the saddest news of the week, of course. But Donald Trump returning, I think this is really good news for free speech. Donald Trump, one of being one of the only Western politicians who actually actively speaks his mind and has these really just 
normal common sense uh, common sense opinions about international relations domestic relations notice that when donald trump was president none of this buffoonery these bad relations with north korea took place he was a guy who could travel to russia travel to you know invite putin to the u.s invite putin to places speak things you know even would trump have allowed zelensky to go awol as he did probably not i, I would argue that trump would have said to zelensky look if you continue to attack donetsk and lugansk if you continue to you know provoke russia in the, in the way that you are like uh, look we're gonna have to you know we're gonna have to cut your funding so i think trump as a politician and yes of course he's pro-american firstly he's america first we don't deny this but uh he's also a realistic politician which is something joe biden really isn't joe biden of course um you know, besides, of course, the whole student debt forgiveness, which I don't think is that crazy bad, as libertarians believe, but the ideas Joe Biden has are very uh, theoretical, liberal, and it's just, it's amazing seeing Donald Trump back, essentially, is what I'm saying, on the political on the political end of things. Hopefully he does use his Twitter and gives us some of the, some of the great takes which he's been giving us for the last, I don't know, decade or so. Yeah, I think we all want to see just some classic dunking. I mean, people are saying Twitter is dead, Twitter is dead, it's not dead. I mean, we all know that if it, people, there's a few people that have deleted their accounts, but there's also people like reactivating their accounts because it's also exciting. And we've seen the pictures, you know, Elon Musk has cleared out, you know, any of these these email jobs, these these people that aren't doing anything. And he's just got the stallions in there, the coders just cranking away at this at this code. I mean, I don't know exactly. I'm mostly just making Silicon Valley references great show but i think <laughs> i think it's fun i mean we, we of course you know me and dimitri spend a lot of time on twitter it's one of our it's where you probably get the most consistent direct takes from us there in telegram so you know be sure to follow us there especially for this turkey thing if it keeps going we're gonna be um we're, we're, we're on this story like this is worth follow us for that but i think uh twitter it's gonna get a lot more fun it's gonna keep getting more fun and while i'm a bit pessimistic now about getting all of my uh, previously banned accounts back you know some of them might have a future you know some of the some of the ones that i was where i behaved myself a little bit better yeah and of course i uh, just wanted to mention elon musk unbanning all these people jordan peterson receiving his account back and the sad thing is of course alex jones not not returning to twitter this is an info wars with him one of the great losses alex jones i i followed him since 2010 which is a little bit late considering he's been on the air since 1995 or 94 at least but I'm not really that old, so I can't really go that, that far back. And I'm not sure how since when Conrad has followed Alex, but yeah, Alex has been one of the most consistent political commentators in, in the English language that has, I think, has been out there. He's literally stayed on course. And yeah, some of his predictions are wrong, but, and some of the things he speaks about, you know, he makes mistakes just like everybody else does. Me and Conrad make mistakes as well. It's just that the consistency and the honesty is what keeps drawing me to him as opposed to politicians who change their tune on subjects like and in the russian sphere i'd say alexander dugan i don't agree with him on everything but he is this alex jonesian type of guy who basically has had the same opinions in 2008 as he has in 2022 and he will probably have in 2028 so really alexander dugan hasn't changed neither has alex jones and that's the people I really appreciate, regardless of how much I agree or disagree with them. And yeah, I really, it's really sad that Alex Jones hasn't returned. But I think what it does show, and I'm sure you've seen his response video to the fact that Elon Musk will not be unbanning him. Alex Jones did say that, well, the globalists are pressuring Elon not to unban him. So it really isn't even up to Elon Musk. I don't know, we're getting conspiratorial here, but it really isn't even up to Elon Musk as to does Alex Jones get unbanned. It's simply that Elon Musk must follow certain rules and there are thresholds set as to who he can unban. 
And I think that's just the reality is, yeah, we are living in this arena set out. The, the rules are kind of uh, set out by these globalist elites and everybody has to play according to their tune, including people like Zelensky, even myself in some regards. Like the, well, there are terms of service, TOS agreements we have to sign, we have to stick to. And Putin, one of those politicians, Putin, Erdogan, these are people who go outside of these agreements and just do as they please to benefit their nation, which is why they have these sort of unique outbursts of creativity. And yeah, just the fact that Alex Jones is unbanned, like any thoughts about that, Conrad? Well, look, I think Alex was magnanimous about it. And I think you're right. I mean, unfortunately, we saw Elon basically parroting the ADL talking point about, we believe in freedom of speech, not freedom of reach, which, you know, is I guess better than just suspending everybody. But it's a bit unfortunate that, you know, you might still see de-boosting and stuff like that going on to things that are deemed hateful, quote unquote, which we know the ADL does just they have a very broad definition and a silly definition of what that is. But I think when it comes to, you know, free speech and Alex Jones and everything, I actually first heard about Alex Jones from a lefty person when I was in middle school. So that was probably back in uh, 2012, 2013. And I was like, like, that was when I first heard that, you know, 9-11, there might be something going on there. And I was like, no way, bro. How could you say that about our country? How could you say that about America, bro? That was my attitude. But then it turns out it was right. And uh, <laughs> it was, but I was aware, I'd been aware of Alex for a while since then. So for a while, and uh, mostly that time I'd been a fan, especially, you know, 2014, 2015, when that all, when, you know, the stuff in Europe with the migrant crisis started kicking up and then with the... Uh, with an election, of course, Trump was a, on Infowars in 2015. They were early supporters. And, you know, Trump, he's talking about Truth Social. I think when when he realizes it's profitable enough, he's going to get on Twitter. But uh, regarding, yeah, Alex Jones, I live in Austin. If Alex Jones or Harrison or Owen are listening to this, you know, so uh, if you want to have us on the show, you know, I could be live in studio. You're not inviting myself on or anything, just making it known, just like, letting you know. But, uh, yeah, it would it would be great to be on. I like I love what they're doing over there. But uh, yeah, we're uh, we're getting pretty close to the end here. Uh, we'll want to you know shout out all of our social media and everything before it's over. But uh, regarding everything we talked about, Dimitri, Turkey, Cyprus, you know, Poland, NATO, uh, Syria, all that stuff. Uh, is there anything that you anything you want to wrap us up with? Anything you feels left been left unsaid? I think I think these this fortnight has been the time when uh the politicians in ukraine have kind of left the building and it's kind of we're realizing it now that like we as an observers of mainstream media that the the positions of zelensky are not aligning with say even mainstream media opinions and like what the experts tell us so zelensky has a certain take on things and it's just like for example the pow's everyone's saying well these pow's are clearly being shot by ukrainian soldiers this is a crime can you have them prosecuted and zelensky's saying no 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 the video is fake it's like, okay and about the missile, he's not admitting about the missile. Ukrainian Ukrainian politicians are denying reality. And it's the first time in the in about a fortnight where there isn't any like there isn't any concession given. The Ukraine is just headstrong, just going forward into delusional, uh, you know, delusional kind of like pushing these delusional opinions. And yeah, uh, it's interesting because we mentioned uh, with Patrick that you know what could stop say american funding of the ukrainian state because this is the main event happening right now in geopolitics hence we keep speaking about the ukraine and on world war now but i guess the funding of ukraine uh, the outcome of the midterms like i suppose that's one of the things you know could could american funding of the ukrainian state be lessened to some extent and uh is this is this probably is the threat of say the funding being reduced by the fact there are a lot more republicans uh, actively 
you know, participating in American congressional politics now, is that maybe something that's causing Zelensky to basically go a wall and just basically not deny straight up lies? I think it maybe things are essentially domestically escalating so far in Ukraine. People are getting nervous. Like the funding is possibly expiring. Like maybe we're reaching a sort of a certain end now. Oh, it's definitely possible. And, uh, you know, we hope for a speedy end to the conflict, of course. But uh, at the same time, we still hear silly things about, you know, retaking Crimea from Zelensky. <laughs> but yeah, no, with, uh, with all of that, you know, be sure to follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore uh, Telegram, World War Now Telly. That's some of the best places to find us. I'm on Twitter, of course, at Gnome Rad, Gnome Rad. Uh, Dimitri's there, O Canonist, O C A N O N I S T. Uh, yeah, like I'd said, this Turkey thing is a big deal. We're going to be following that very closely in conjunction, of course, with the Cypriot Archbishop elections, which are on December 18th, is when those are, which is when three nominees will be sent to the Synod for then. Uh, the Synod will then vote and elect one of those three men as the Archbishop of Cyprus. Again, one of the who is, he's not called a patriarch, but he is the equivalent of a patriarch as far as autocephaly goes and independence in the Orthodox Church. But yes, be sure to keep up with us on social media. Pray for the church. Pray for everybody around the world that everything would be, that peace would reign and that uh, the church would be united. And uh, with all of that, I guess I'll say good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. I hope it goes well. And uh, Dimitri, I'll, I'll let you send us off. And thank you everyone for watching. Make sure to check out our um, latest episode with uh, Patrick Casey. And I think we the link will be in the description. This is a talk we had, a two-hour talk early in the week. Uh, it was a pretty good discussion, open-mindedly. And just the three of us kind of talk about the subjects we speak about in World War Now. Make sure to check out that stream because it won't be on our channel, but it will be in the description. And of course, follow us on all the relevant social medias. There will be more articles coming out on Substack related to politics, geopolitics, as well as some of the church issues related to national relations. And with those words, me and Conrad are out for this week. We'll speak to you guys next time.